Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Live from Los Angeles, the Win Without Competing Show with Dr. Arlene Barrow, career coach one and author of Win Without Competing. Now, here's Dr. Arlene. Thank you, Virgil. In tough economic times, it is especially important to use my right fit method, which will enable you to win without competing in your career and in your life. A key component of my right fit method is passion, our career fuel, the impetus and foundation of career success. Highly successful people are soaked in passion, but passion is not enough. They excel in managing the process and walking down the right fit road to reach their goals. They know how to recognize right fits. They know how to recognize wrong fits. They know whether they can fix or not fix a wrong fit. They know when to walk away. They assume responsibility for their successes and failures. They say to themselves, it's all up to me. Throughout my own career, as a medical school dean, to heading a $60 million education program at the National Institutes of Health, and as the founder and CEO of Barrow Global Search, Inc., I have observed that figuring out right fits is extremely difficult for many people to do. As a result, they continue taking the wrong fit road and wonder why they are in wrong fit marriages, wrong fit careers, or wrong fit homes. The solution is simple. Stop asking who is the best and what is the best. Stop comparing and contrasting. If all your choices are wrong and you pick one which you designate as the best, you made a wrong choice. Picture a barrel of rotten apples. Grab the best one. What do you have? A rotten apple. To learn more about my Right Fit Method, continue listening to today's show. And after the show, visit winwithoutcompeting.com to read excerpts from my book. On to my guest today, Dr. Judith Reichman who sets the standard on women's health issues. Dr. Reichman is one of the leading voices in America on women's health issues. She has been a medical contributor on women's health for the NBC Today Show, appearing bi-weekly for over a decade. During much of that time, she wrote a weekly column for the Today Show on MSNBC. She is the author of the bestsellers, I'm Not in the Mood, 
what every woman should know about improving her libido. I'm too young to get old. Healthcare for women after 40. Relax. This won't hurt. Painless answers to women's health questions. And her most recent book, Slow Your Clock Down, The Complete Guide to a Healthy, Younger You. Dr. Reichman is also a contributing editor for the LA Times Magazine. Dr. Judith Reichman has a thriving practice in Los Angeles. She is an attending physician in gynecology at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center and a fellow at the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. She specializes in perimenopausal and menopausal care. Dr. Reichman lives in Los Angeles. She is married to Gil Cates, film director, producer, and the artistic director of the Geffen Playhouse. They have six children and one dog who resides with them. During my interview with her, I will uncover how she sets the standard on women's health issues. Welcome, Dr. Judith Reichman, to Win Without Competing. Hi there. Hi. Tell us about where you grew up. Well, I grew up in a small town in, in New Jersey called the North Jersey Shore, and the town was called Little Silver. Um, I attended public school there, and it was a wonderful town to grow up in. What did your parents do? My dad is a theoretical physicist, and he worked for many years for the Army as a civilian doing research. He, his research was all theoretical, so basically he sat down with a pad and with a pencil, uh, did a lot of publishing. My mom was a pianist who then went on to be a music teacher and um, worked usually from 9 to 3 and then was home for her kids. Did you have brothers and sisters? I have one sister who's three years younger than I am, and uh, she uh, currently resides in New York, and she is a uh, Ph.D. Uh, cancer research uh, person at one of the hospitals in New York. What do you remember about your family life that makes you feel good today? Well, first of all, we were a close-knit family. Uh, my parents were always there for me. Uh, they were very involved in my uh, childhood. Uh, my dad really felt very strongly about the need to understand mathematics and uh, science and would spend countless hours going over issues with me that had to do with logic and mathematics. And as a matter of fact, by the time I finished high school, he had taught me a whole college curriculum of math, but he was also very much involved in my desire to dance. So he would take off early every other day from work, and he would literally drive me the 55 miles from Little Silver to New York so I could study ballet in New York. My mom was a wonderful mother and uh, cared very much about us and was always there for us, and it was just a wonderful family. Going further, in terms of the dancing, because I know that we talked prior to the show, you told me that you wanted to become a dancer. 
explain why this was not possible. Well, first of all, I was very intrigued, as many little girls are, by ballet, and especially classical ballet. And I love the discipline, the exercise, and the ability to be creative and to express music. I wasn't very good at piano. Nobody ever tried the violin, and, and dance was my form of expressing music. And uh, once I was able to do it in a more uh, professional setting, and I went to the American School of Ballet, I had hoped that Balanchine would notice me and that I would duly be allowed to come in as a, in the corps de ballet of the company. But unfortunately, I grew too tall, and my arch was too pronounced, and it became clear that I wasn't going to be chosen and that I had to find another way to express myself and to have a career. When you say too tall, what what's the limit in terms of a ballerina? Well, in those days, yeah, in those days they they tended to be five five, most five six. I'm five seven, and uh, there was a sense that the female dancers had to be uniformly. Um, between 5'4 and 5'6, they could be shorter. They certainly were not supposed to tower over the male dancers. Do you know if it's the same standard today? I was they do have taller. Period. Yeah, today they do have taller dancers, and I don't think they're so stringent on the height restrictions. So how did you feel when you realized that you wouldn't be able to pursue this? Did you actively start searching for other things to do that you were passionate about? Well, my parents had always instilled a a degree of desire for learning, and so it wasn't a huge disappointment to me. I uh, also realized that perhaps technically I wasn't as good as some of the other young women studying in my class, and I'd always pursued um, science and math, so when I was a a high school student, I was chosen to go into a special science program at Columbia University for high school students, and that allowed me to pursue that goal, and uh, one of the reasons I was selected to go into college rather early was that I had participated in that program. At age 16, you entered Barnard College, the Women's College of Columbia University. Why did you select Barnard? Did it have something to do with your desire to pursue science and math? What prompted you to select Barnard, and where else did you apply? Well, I was very young, and I started applying at 15 and a half, and uh, Barnard was the woman's uh, uh school that was connected to Columbia University where I was already doing something in uh, evenings uh, in New York. So I felt very comfortable, but I didn't apply to many schools. I applied, I think, to Barnard and to Radcliffe and to Douglas. And when I went for my interview at Radcliffe, and that was the first time I'd ever been on a plane, by the way, um, they said to me, we'll take you, but you're a little young. We'd like you to wait out the four years of high school and then come back. And being very impatient and getting bored with high school, I felt, well, let me go to Barnard. I know it. It's in New York. It's close to home. And it was a wonderful choice for me. So you were very happy that you made that choice. It was the right fit. 
Absolutely. It was a wonderful school, and uh, I credit them for with my desire to go into medicine. When did you decide that you, that you wanted to become a physician? And had you ever thought about following in your dad's footsteps as a physicist? I really wasn't going to go into physics or to math, and that became very uh, obvious to me when I took a graduate course of math at the age of 16 over at Columbia and felt totally um, distant from both the professors and my fellow students. Um, whereas when I took biology courses, uh, I became very interested in the biology of cells and of um, the physiology that has to do with uh, a actual life, and uh, when I had to decide whether I was going to go on and, say, do a Ph.D. in chemistry or biology, and then I also had the choice of medical school, I thought, wait a minute, why not go to the organism that is the most complete, the most complex, and study and treat that, and that's why I went into medicine. I think it's amazing how you thought things through at a young age. I mean, when you really think about it, you did that from the early years, even from the time when you decided you weren't going to pursue becoming a ballerina. It sounds as if your parents really did an outstanding job in terms of helping you become a logical thinker. Oh, absolutely. I, I credit them with a lot. And also, I, I tend to think that... Um, 15- and 16-year-olds are not as dumb as we would think. <laughs> they actually can make some plans. They do know what they like. They do have passions, and they do realize that the choices they make in many cases will affect their future lives. In terms of obstetrics and gynecology, is that something you decided upon while you were in medical school? When, when did that specialty uh, become your passion? When I took my obstetrical and gynecology residence, uh, I'm sorry, my uh, a, I think it was a four or six week um, a course where we actually got to deliver babies and see babies being born. We dealt with infertility. We watched surgeries. I was just amazed at the complexity of the field and over just overjoyed to be part of the obstetrical experience and to watch women giving birth and having life created. And that's what really got me into considering going into that field. Prior to that, I, like most women in medical school, thought, oh, I'll become a pediatrician and I'll take care of children. But once I did my obstetrical training, I really wanted to go into that field. You spent your junior year of college in Israel. Why Israel and what did you do while you were there? Well, one of the reasons I went to Israel was to explore my Jewish background. I had never gone to Hebrew school. I'd never really been involved in anything that had any Zionistic flavor. Um, I was made aware of some of this because I took courses um, at Barnard and then at the Jewish Theologic Seminary. And um, there was a point where uh, we were often allowed to go for our junior year abroad. And rather than go to Europe, I wanted to explore something else. So I did go to Israel and explored my um, ethnicity. 
what did you feel about the country while you were there? I loved it. It's a wonderful place for young people. I was overjoyed to be there. I had a fabulous year, and I made a lot of friends. I quickly left the American student group, um, rented an apartment with an Israeli roommate, immersed myself in the language. I actually took science courses there, and although they allowed me to do the exams in English and the textbooks were in English, I listened to lectures in Hebrew, and uh, it was a wonderful experience. I met my future husband, and um, I couldn't wait to go back. So I went back to Barnard, finished my degree, and then went back to Israel. Yes, you were graduated from Barnard, magna cum laude, with honors in zoology, and you returned to Israel and attended initially Hadassah Medical School in Jerusalem, and then transferred to Sackler School of Medicine in Tel Aviv, from which you received your MD degree, magna cum laude. You then returned to the United States to do a three-year residency in obstetrics and gynecology in Chicago. You moved again and again to Cardiff, Wales, Dusseldorf, Germany, and Houston, Texas. Am I correct? that you were selecting postgraduate institutions that would meet your high standards of excellence. Well, just to clarify something, first of all, you make me sound really good when I was doing it. I just thought I'm following what I have to do to uh, get my training. I I moved back to Israel. Um, Basically, I was married to an Israeli. My two children are born in Israel. When we... uh, decided to do postgraduate training, uh, and we went to the University of Chicago. One of the reasons was that I felt it was an excellent institution for residency, and my first husband went and got his Ph.D. in law at the University of Chicago Law School. So we were there for professional reasons. We loved our, our training, but we couldn't wait to get back to Israel. And once I was in Israel, um, I went ahead and went to other institutions, but briefly to do subspecialty training and came back to the United States only because I was on sabbatical. I had been in academic practice, and what's usually the case is after anywhere from five to seven years, you take a year off and you go elsewhere. Well, returning to the concept of high standards, how would you say that, because you do have high standards, how would you say that that has impacted your career? Well, that's interesting. The high standards, I feel, are not are what you set for yourself. That's and correct. That's my that's my thought is you about. look in the mirror and you say, I did the best I could, and I lived up to what I could live up. I mean, I was very lucky that I was allowed to attend or practice or specialize in fabulous institutions. Um, But that was partly because um, at the time there weren't that many women doing it. I was exceptional in that that way, and they sort of allowed me to come in. I think today um, you're lucky if you do get to train in these places, and the competition may be even greater. But I, would, I, I just feel very fortunate, and um, when I was given choices, I thought I made the right choices for me, but 
part of it was geographic and part of it was matching my life to that of my husband and what he was doing academically. So we had to we had to match things up and it was lucky that we were able to do so. Well, you did a blend it sounds like, a blend of the right fit in terms of your personal life and professional life. Well, at the time I thought so. <laughs> right, yeah, a blend, yeah. Well, that makes sense. In other words, when you're trying to figure out the right fit, you have to take into account all the variables so that you can make a decision to match that fit. I think what I was asking about the standards I'm getting at, throughout your life, would you say that you raise the bar for yourself higher and higher, you personally? That's what I'm talking about, forgetting about anybody else that's around you. Well, I I would say that I tried to. I didn't purposely go and say, oh, I must have an Ivy League this or I must have a number one rated university for that. I simply chose what I thought was a good program and um, I Every time I went someplace, generally I applied for several, and wherever I was accepted, I went. Um, It wasn't always I'm going to go to the number one school or the number one institution. I simply felt I wanted to have as best training as I could get under my circumstances. And my circumstances were I was married, and later I became the mother of two girls, and I had to fit all that together. Right, but that's the... That's the blueprint that I'm talking about. But you personally always wanted to excel because you graduated. Well, I also wanted to be, I I personally wanted to be engaged and happy. Going further, you returned to Israel to practice medicine after you finished your training. Tell us more about that. Well, I, I went back to uh, work in, in, the, in Israel. I, I basically uh, was one of the youngest female, certainly female, attendings, and I supervised residency programs. I took care of many women. I helped organize uh, labor and delivery, um, then worked also in gynecology, supervised resident training in doing surgery, and um, the medicine in Israel is quite excellent, and I enjoyed very much working there. Um, it was a teaching environment, it was an active participating environment, and uh, I felt that what I could do in Israel mimicked what I could do in any good hospital in the United States. Well, I lived in Israel for a year, uh, in Beersheva, Israel, and uh, I was uh, an associate professor at Ben-Gurion University, and the time that I was there was fascinating in that the physicians were on strike. And they basically sent the patients home in taxis. It was an amazing thing. And I was told not to divulge the amount of money that I was making because I was making more money than the physicians. And so it was, it was quite an adventure. Well, I don't think that people go into medicine in Israel for the money. Uh, Israeli medicine is um, 
not quite completely socialized, but most doctors, especially those that work in hospitals or academic institutions, are on salary. And then some of them have private practice at the end of the day, and some of my former residents now um, will finish a day at 5 o'clock and then go to their offices and work until 11 or midnight. Um, but they do it because it's a very interesting um, profession to go into. It's highly regarded. They They have reasons to go in that are not economic. I've never participated in a strike there. I know that they've had strikes. Absolutely. Um, I was yeah, in institutions was in Tel Aviv. Yeah, well, I was in institutions in Tel Aviv, and um, I always felt that we practice excellent medicine. And even today, I feel that uh, in, in a milieu here in the United States, where so many people don't have health insurance. You go to Israel, every single person has health insurance, and those who want extra care can buy higher-level health insurance to the point where they will even have a doctor come in the middle of the night to their apartment or to their home to check on them. Um, I'd love to see um, our country take a look at some of the medicine that's practiced there and, and use it as a model. After five years of practicing medicine in Israel, you came back to the United States with your husband and landed in Los Angeles where you set up your own obstetrics and gynecology practice. You initially believed that you would pursue academic medicine. What happened? Well, I came to Cedars, and the understanding was that I would work or be part of the reproductive medicine uh, section, and um, when I got there, there really wasn't any, um, and they weren't quite prepared for me to set something up. And as a result, I decided that um, the, the, the best thing for me for the year that I was supposed to be here was to perhaps uh, see patients privately. Someone offered me space in their office. They said, why don't you come over and, and see some patients? And I was surprised at how lovely it really was. I got to know my patients, see them, for example, if they were pregnant from the beginning of pregnancy to delivery. Um, and I, I really enjoyed the private practice aspect, not so much the financial as the, the ability to clinically take care of women, talk to women, and have a long-term relationship with my patients that I hadn't been able to do in um, academic practice. So maybe it was a blessing in disguise, so to speak. Well, it was serendipitous, and it was a choice that I, I went into not because I actively wanted to, but because that was what the time and a situation called for. And once I did it, I enjoyed it and decided that that was a career choice that I would be very happy with. But if you hadn't been happy, I expect you would have sought uh, an academic position, am I correct? Well, I had the choice of always going back to Israel and going back to the institution where I had worked and I was lecturing at the University of Tel Aviv. Um, I could have applied to do the same at USC or UCLA, but having done this for a year and really liking it, I decided to continue once I made the decision to stay here. In 1996, your first book, I'm Too Young to Get Old, Healthcare for Women After 40, 
was published and became a bestseller. Your mission was to communicate evidence-based information. I'm very curious about the association between breast cancer and parabens. Could you talk about that given the amount of parabens that are contained in women's cosmetics? Actually, that's not my area of expertise, and I don't know how much is in the cosmetics, and I don't know of any data that shows a direct correlation between use of cosmetics, especially certain brands and breast cancer. So I don't feel comfortable in answering that question. Well, let's go further. Can you give some examples of um, the concept of using um, strong scientific evidence so that women make the right decisions about their health? Well, I think especially today with the way the media reports on a study of four rats and therefore there's going to be a cure for a certain cancer, what we have to understand is that medicine is not anecdotal. And in order to make, an, uh, and it's not just observational, we really have to look at um, the studies where they have had appropriate randomization, blinding, and they look prospectively at the results And it takes time to get those studies. It takes time to get that evidence. But as we move into a time where we can't spend money hop-plop on just everything and we have to decide what works, I think that evidence-based medicine has become the gold standard. And women have to understand what it's all about. Generally, the media doesn't do a great job. And this is where I think that doctors have to sit there, explain, be patient, And one of the reasons I wrote the book was that I wanted women to understand about science, about the issues that affect them, and be uh, proactive in their care. Um, I had felt that women were talked down to, that doctors were on a pedestal, so I tried to get off the pedestal and talk to them because I, too, have been a patient. Well, I think it's wonderful. And then uh, you spent more than 10 years uh, appearing on the Today Show bi-weekly, discussing women's health issues. I personally learned a lot from listening to you and watching you. It must have been difficult balancing your practice in Los Angeles and flying back and forth from L.A. to New York. How did you manage this? Well, it was easier before 9-11. I, what I would do is I would fly out on Sunday um, get there in time to go to sleep, get up, do the show, and go right back to the airport and be back in my office seeing patients at 2.30. And it was a routine I got used to. I did it every other week. And the fact that I could get on the set and discuss a topic and have 6 million people watch and know that it might be effective was was very challenging, and I, I did enjoy it, except that it, as time went on, the commute became harder It wasn't so much the effect on my practice as the effect on me and the fact that it now took way longer to stand in line, go through security, get on a flight. Um, I couldn't come back and see patients the same day I appeared on the show. And at some point, it just was too difficult. Commuting to New York from the West Coast is hard. I know our listeners would like to hear how your relationship with the Today Show began. 
Tell us about Well, I, I never went out to do that. What happened was after I wrote my first book, uh, and the, 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 the subcontext context was healthcare for women after 40, um, Katie Couric was turning 40. And my publishers very much wanted me to appear on the show. And I think they had me come on almost as a joke because she was turning 40 and they were, you know, sort of laughing, oh, you're turning 40, you have new health concerns, let's get this person who's written the book and we'll have her come on and we'll discuss health concerns after 40. To make a long story short, I went on the show, very much enjoyed it. Um, I think Katie did too, and the producers thought it was good, and they started asking me back, but always as an emergency. Oh, we have this study that came out on breast cancer. Would you come and discuss it? And they would call and ask me to come in in the middle of the week, sort of at the last minute, and I did it a few times, and then I finally said to them, look, either I fly out on a Sunday, do the show on Monday, we have a controlled time, and I know when I'm going to do it, or I just simply cannot do this anymore. And they agreed, and that's how I started doing the women's health segments. Well, you manage the process. In 1998, your second book, I'm Not in the Mood, What Every Woman Should Know About Improving Her Libido, was published and was a bestseller. The subject of libido elicited Oprah's attention, and you were her principal guest twice on this show. When we talked prior to the show, you told me that you speak the unspoken. Do you think that by writing and speaking about women's libidos, you give them permission to speak about the unspoken as well as empower them to do the most they can for their well-being? Well, at the time, there weren't any, there weren't many, let me put it that way, books and articles that appeared in uh, women's media uh, about libido and um, the whole issue of uh, sexual response was not really talked about. Uh, There was some thought that maybe testosterone and some medical concoctions could have an impact, but nobody clearly understood it. I have somewhat of an endocrinologic background. At some point, I had treated patients uh, who I felt uh, did need some uh, testosterone. Uh, I, I worked with a compounding pharmacy because it wasn't FDA approved, and somehow this got out. Um, I had some well-known people who went on Oprah and talked about it, and that's why she invited me. Uh, my publisher said, oh, why don't you write a book about this? And I thought, well, I can do it. It's actually a thin book. And I talk about the fact that there are many, many factors in a woman's libido, and it's not just a question of hormones. But somehow the concept of libido, hormones, and Reichman got out. And for about a year and a half, every woman who had any sexual dysfunction was calling my office to come in for um, a consult. And it got to be difficult because that's not really what I'm about but nevertheless, it must have been interesting. Well, it, it's always interesting to take care of women's problems that other people don't want to talk about or listen to, but um, I didn't want to be a one-track physician. How did you become passionate about women's health issues? Well, I think one of the reasons is I'm a woman, and uh 
I too need to get my pap smear and needed to get exams and needed to get mammograms. Um, and I always felt that uh, perhaps uh, my my issues weren't as well addressed as those of men. Uh, most of the books that had been written prior to my book on menopause did not really deal with it. Women were sort of considered to be little men and we had the same issues and the same problems. And as a matter of fact, research wasn't done specifically on women. Usually it was done on men because um, women could have the audacity of either being on the pill or getting pregnant, and they didn't want to try um, do trials of drugs. That was all changed. But as the change occurred, there was a delay in the media reaction and the reporting, and it, it just seemed to me the right thing to do to let women know what what our hormones did, what our gynecologic issues were, and at the time I was doing obstetrics, so certainly prenatal care was very important. And I think because I was a woman, because I had felt that we would, were neglected, because I had the expertise, because I enjoyed the creativity of writing, that it all came together, and that's why I started writing books. Your personal life. You are married to Gil Cates, a name brand in entertainment. This is oh my God! I have to have go home and have him walk the dog. Let's not get too carried away. This is your <laughs> second marriage. Well, I've met Gil yeah. Cates, you know, because I go to. I'm a subscriber at the Geffen Playhouse, and yeah. of course, he's also produced the Academy Awards. How many times is it? Nine, ten, fourteen. Um, fourteen. Okay. Um, he was the dean of the School of Theater Arts at UCLA. Um, yeah, it was so the theater, School of Theater, Film, and Television. Yeah, and so forth. Um, and in fact, for my doctoral dissertation, um, I wrote that at UCLA and did a study of creativity and studied a group of uh, writers in the theater arts department at UCLA. So it has a tender spot in my heart. This is your second marriage. How did you meet Gil? On a blind date. <laughs> uh, a, 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 a physician uh, who at the time was the um, chief of staff at Cedars um, asked me if I'd like to meet his cousin. And uh, my reply was, well, what does he do? He said, oh, he's in the entertainment business. And I had been in Los Angeles long enough to know that they generally don't hand out mental health awards to people in the entertainment business. So I actually said, no, I don't think so. Um, but he was quite persistent, and he asked Gil if he wanted to meet a physician, surgeon, and Gil said, does she have a mustache? So our, our initial <laughs> reactions were kind of negative. But to his credit, he was very persistent, and we met. And uh, about a year and a half later, we were married. Well, obviously, he was the right fit. I believe you've been married now, what is it, uh, 21 years? That's correct. Okay. <laughs> you have two children, and Gil has four. How did you go about blending your families 21 years ago? Well, at the time we got married, uh, three of his children were old enough to not be living at home, and uh, his uh, 16-year-old moved in with us, and I had a uh, six-year-old, and my older daughter was also not living at home. And uh, there was such a significant age difference. They became very close. They've always done very well together. And um, 
we we actually never had a problem because although it's six in number, we really only had two at home, and then one after two years went off to college. So um, Gil raised my younger daughter, and she adores him. How do you balance your professional and personal life? Sometimes it's difficult. We both have professions that we love. We're a busy during the day. Um, we email one another quite a bit. Uh, we make sure we have dinner together every evening unless one of us has a dinner engagement. Um, we're both very interested in what we do and don't feel we have to live through the experiences of the other. We share, but um, we're each of us okay on our own. And uh, so if one of us has to travel or do something or be away from home, um, it's not like one of us is at a home just waiting for the other to come home. We, we each have our own careers, and we respect one another's um, differences and uh, are engaged in one another's problems. Do you both cook? Neither of us do. <laughs> ah, so you eat dinner out generally? No, no. Um, I was lucky enough when I, I married Gil, he had a housekeeper, and she's been with him for 25 years, and she's a good cook. So we we come home in the evening, and she usually has dinner re- ready. And on the weekends, um, if we have to make something, you know, there's always a grill. I can throw things in the microwave. I mean, I, I can cook. It's not that I don't absolutely know how to boil water, but um, a lot of times we go out and... Uh, in the summer, we we sometimes uh, use the outdoor grill, but um, I've been lucky enough not to have to come home and cook every night. What career advice do you have for our listeners? Oh, that's such a, a huge topic. Uh, when young women come to me, and you know they're they're deciding on college or they're deciding on uh, post college careers or graduate school. Um, I basically encourage them to follow what they they love and not to consider just the economic um, implications of what they choose. Um, I I can't give specific career advice unless someone says, well, should I go to medical school? And I'll say, oh, absolutely, if that's what you enjoy. And today with the economic situation, nobody is, is guaranteed a job in any profession. But if you're in a profession where you get the expertise and you're out there proffering that expertise and you're really interested in what you're doing, um, it really does help to to get your career started. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Reitman, and would love to have you come back soon, especially uh, if you are planning to write another book. Is that in the cards at all? Well, actually, um, what I do now is I have a website where I write a weekly article, and it's very easy to log on. It's judithreichman.net, and um, it's free. Anybody can log on. I write an article that has to do with either recent research or uh, recent reporting or just an issue that I think Uh, a lot of women have to deal with. I summarize the research out there, and it comes out once a week. Um, I don't know that I'm going to actually publish a book because right now I I archived in there is about 25 
different articles, and I enjoy doing it once a week, and I don't have to meet a deadline of a publisher. And my thought is that most people today go to websites and go to the web and they start Googling to get information. And I'm not so sure that uh, a book is the way to go because between writing the book and publishing the book, it usually takes every five, six months, sometimes a year. And by then, some of the information actually may be outdated. So I love using the Internet to give advice to women. And it's, anybody can log on. Well, thank you so much. And um, I really appreciate your taking time from your busy schedule and joining us today. My pleasure. Upcoming shows. Please join me again next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. I will interview Jack Fuhrer, Editorial Director, UCLA Magazine, who is frequently quoted as an expert in the areas of advertising and media. On subsequent Wednesdays, watch for Judy Lampu, producer, screenwriter, lyricist, and singer, who wrote the season opening show of Columbo, and award-winning filmmaker Suzanne De Laurentiis. To listen to archive shows, visit drbarrow.com, that's drbarrow.com, from which you can link to Blog Talk Radio. I would love to hear from you. Please email me, drbarrow at winwithoutcompeting.com or call 310-441-5305. To learn more about the Right Fit Method and my book, Win Without Competing, Career Success, The Right Fit Way, visit winwithoutcompeting.com. For information about career coaching, visit drbarrow.com, that's drbarrow.com, and for search services, barrowglobal.com. Remember this trigger tip. Walk down the right fit road, and you will win without competing. Goodbye for now. This is Dr. Arlene, author, Win Without Competing, Career Coach One, Founder and CEO, Barrow Global Search, Inc. <laughs>